Hey everybody, this is Rob Liefeld. We are back with yet another edition of Observations. We are covering comic books and pop culture and how they have uh, mashed up and, and, and comic books I love have become movies and Netflix series and all sorts of video games, toys. They're everywhere. Comic books has taken over the culture and Observations exists to um, examine the past as it is informing the future with all of the cool comic book stuff that I have grown up with uh, and, 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 and how it has been translated and how it has caught fire. And that's the world we live in now because everything is a comic book. Everything from comic books is a movie or a streaming show or a TV show. And uh, I love comics. They're my passion. They always have been. And we are going to uh, hit the ground running today as we continue to push through towards the late 80s, we are knocking on the 90s door, but what is going on in comics in the late 80s is fascinating as Marvel takes firm control of the market with uh, their mastery of, of business and marketing and, and changing their publishing schedule that will result in this incredible dominance that once again distances them from their competition because, again, in 1986, DC is just ruling the roost they they have watchmen they have dark knight they have batman year one they have justice league you know with kevin mcguire and, and keith giffen they've got legends they've got john byrne on superman coming over after an 11 year super run at marvel i mean they are just dominating the scene and uh running away with it especially critically as we've covered mainstream um media is 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 covering everything that, that DC is doing. Rolling Stone, MTV, they're they're just they're just all over all of these moves. Not the bright shining time for Marvel as they are re uh re re kind of uh branding themselves and they're they're throwing a, a bit of a uh they're throwing everything against the wall at this point, new costumes new looks, new directions, but they're going to be on sure footing by 1988 again. Uh, DC's dominance does not sustain itself, and one of the reasons that Marvel battles back is uh, they they not only do they steady the course by returning to their bestsellers, uh, which are the X-Men and Spider-Man, primarily uh, during this time, the X-Men, and then Spider-Man will come on strong, but in 1988, 1987, 1988, uh, the X Men is is has has been branching off uh, since '86. It's it's uh, found a companion title called X Factor, which got off to very shaky ground, uh, very uncertain. And uh, and then when Walt Simonson comes on early on in the run, uh, X Factor really finds itself fast. And 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 with someone as measured as accomplished, as professional as Walt Simonson, who has just radically uh, in the last four years turned Thor into a bestseller from them, kind of taking him again, that classic from the basement to the penthouse, uh, that that is what Walt Simonson did with Thor. He radically changed the comic. He is one of the best graphic illustrators in the business, period, end of story. And his visuals were a huge part of it. Obviously, we are in the comic book business. This is where visuals matter. And pictures um, resonate with the audience. So he is now uh, on X Factor, 
with the original X-Men team, Cyclops, Angel, Beast, Iceman, and Marvel Girl slash Jean Grey. And on that book, he just starts to sing. And he, uh, uh, there is Apocalypse, there is Archangel, there is the, the Horseman of the Apocalypse. I mean, it really uh, takes off under, under uh, his pen and his direction. And the, the, the book really becomes a solid number two behind the X-Men. The New Mutants is still flailing. It will flail for quite some time. It's just, um, it's a bit of a tone-deaf book. The characters are four to five years behind in terms of the way they're portrayed and fashion-wise. They are not um, portraying what is currently going on in the youth culture. And, and I, I just remember being someone who was part of the youth culture, watching MTV morning, noon, and night, consuming all of the youth culture uh, that I would buy this book about teenagers that was completely tone deaf, but it really, the X-Books succeed beyond this because the primary X-Men book has um, really excited Chris Claremont again uh, with the arrival of a new penciler named Mark Silvestri. We've covered Mark a, a few times in the past. He came on at Marvel on the Conan titles. His work is very reminiscent to the classic uh, Marvel iconic uh, illustrator John Buscema, who is the primary artistic force between uh, behind the best-selling how-to draw comics, The Marvel Way. John Buscema was almost a house style for Marvel following Jack Kirby. He is such a master of the form. His, his figure work is uh, very reminiscent of the great comic book illustrators and just illustrators, period. Hal Foster, um, uh, Alex Raymond, uh, Frank Frazetta, these are the tenets of, of John Buscema's figure work style. Uh, and and, and it's, it's through a John Buscema lens, he puts his own style on everything. His faces, uh, the, the variety of faces from, you know, ogres to bartenders to beautiful women to handsome heroes to evil, you know, dark lords, um, everything in between. John put his stamp on it. He was great. Mark Silvestri came in with a very John Buscema base, very, very much in the John Buscema, uh, just base of his art, figures, faces, and he did Conan. He did issues of Conan, King Conan, so they literally were like, hey, let's get Mark Silvestri, who draws like John Buscema, to do the, really the biggest John Buscema legacy book of the last 15 years, which was Conan. That's the book that John Buscema really, um, in the 70s and 80s, was best known for. And uh, Mark had been on that book until he got some fill-in gigs and uh, was handed a miniseries. Because what, 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 what gets Marvel to the place that we're headed here uh, is, is these miniseries, which is X-Men versus the Fantastic Four, X-Men versus the Avengers. Marvel finds out that because of the popularity of the X-Men, they can do these four to six issue miniseries, which pit the X-Men against other popular Marvel characters, X-Men versus Mephisto. I mean, all of these comics are going on. Marvel is churning out X-Men related product that is in the, sh that is short term format, these miniseries, which they've had great success with back to Wolverine by Chris Claremont, Frank Miller back in 82, 83. You know, they are now beginning to um, produce these as a, at a greater rate because the sales are so great. They launch these, they launch high, and by the time they've tapered off, they, they're selling 
better than most of the Marvel comics. So by putting out an X-Men versus Fantastic Four, by putting out an X-Men versus Avengers, you're getting this high launching number one, then a really good two, three, four, maybe a five issues, and then they you know collect it and they've got a great new uh, adventure to market to the direct market. And the direct market is growing at this time. And one of the things that's going to really help it grow is the way Marvel manages their X-Men titles. And these miniseries, I remember this is right when I'm exiting retail and I'm starting my my career in comics. I'm Well, I'm drawing Hawk and Dove. Mark Silvestri is arriving on the X-Men. It's, it's his uh, graduation. He He's done these King Conans. He's He's announced as the penciler on X-Men versus Avengers, which is a really exciting book. Roger Stern writes it, not Chris Claremont, but it is a uh, really great uh, showcase for Mark to show that he is more than just uh, Conan the Barbarian. His depiction of the Avengers is amazing. His uh, Captain America, his Thor, his Iron Man, they're powerful, really, really beautiful V-cut male figures, these very sculpted physiques, again, in the... In the, in the uh, mold of what uh, John Buscema drew like and some Frank Frazetta in there and Mark had some really nice modern uh, penciling techniques and Mark is a great storyteller. He's soup to nuts, just very, very basic, uh, great illustrator, great faces, great figures, great storytelling, nothing too flashy, just the fundamentals, but the most sound fundamentals and very attractive visuals, very attractive people. And, I mean, the Avengers are beautiful, the X-Men are beautiful, all the intermediary characters are beautiful. This is beautiful art. Mark draws very attractive males, females, and what happens is uh, he is then asked to take over the regular X-Men title because nothing outsells the regular X-Men title. That is the um, go-to, uh, just uh, gold standard, the monthly standby for Marvel Comics. X-Men is number one. It was number one. Uh, since John Byrne left, Dave Cockrum took over, then Paul Smith, and then after Paul Smith, it fell into this weird period where it was really mismatched. John Romita Jr., who had cut his teeth on uh, Spider-Man and Daredevil uh, and, and Iron Man, was suddenly drawing this book, and 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 John Romita Jr. draws everybody like they're just uh, they're, they're they're a little thicker, they're 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 not as handsome, um, pretty people aren't really his forte, but he was a dependable storyteller and he went to town on that book for several years but at the same time it became a very uninspired book it maintained its top slot because it was a habit people love those characters they're going to show up for wolverine and colossus and storm no matter what that was a given that was proven after burn left with dave cockrum whose second run was not as inspired as his first run but it was you know deserved that dave would come back and, and now pick up what John had ignited and run with it. And then Paul Smith came on, and he was just, just next level, came from animation, worked with Ralph Baschke uh, on, on, on all sorts of animated uh, productions, and came on with this beautiful animated line and beautiful depiction of these characters. The one thing that the X-Men consistently had was very commercial, appealing, beautiful-looking renditions of these characters. Art Adams is doing these annuals in 85, and it reminds you of just how much you want the X-Men to look beautiful and commercial. And having seen Chris Claremont at so many conventions as a fan, and uh, 
watching him basically flirt with artists who would come on the scene and he would want to woo them with the you know allure of his best-selling franchise i mean chris uh had the controls he was the voice of that book and i saw him just fawn over art adams and and lure him to the asgardian wars annuals and and not let paul smith leave completely getting him back to do x-men alpha flight again another uh double-sized two-part miniseries um claremont always was looking for the next hot thing and in mark silvestri he had found it and mark picks up and takes over for john Romita jr who once leaves does not come back again in this bronze era he will not come back again until the 90s where he has another stint on the book uh, because all of the uh, big image guys leave and it's all hands on deck and they bring back as many people as they can. But at this time, in 87-88, Romita Jr. finally exits and you can tell that Chris gets sparked again. He loves Mark's art. Mark draws an amazing Wolverine slash Logan and Mark draws the most beautiful women, the most beautiful f female faces, figures, forms, um, and and so much so, I mean, Mark, uh, Chris Claremont would devote entire issues to just the female cast. Uh, there's one where they all just go out shopping in 1989, and, and, and you can just tell Mark uh, loves drawing females, and Chris loves having him draw females, and the female quotient in the book goes up, much more so than it was with uh, Ramita Jr., who was not known for drawing his attractive females. Now you've got Mark, who can, who everyone's beautiful. And, and, and so Chris is sparked by this. And the stories get even better than ever. And they start building out Chris's storylines to cross over with these other X-Men spinoff books. So what you immediately have happening is the marketing and the salespeople are huddling together and they're like look these these we had some great success was like secret wars secret wars 2 not so much but now let's see if we can put as many tethers out as we possibly can so we're going to do like fall of the mutants mutant massacre these titles that will then uh involve uh x-men and x-factor and new mutants and so suddenly you're getting three parts a month and it's a three-month storyline so you're getting nine parts all together, three X-Factors, three X-Men, three New Mutants. And uh, the New Mutants ones were always kind of the lagging, not 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 kind of living up to the hype. But at this point, you've got Mark Silvestri and you got Walt Simonson contributing. And uh, Claremont is just firing on all cylinders. He introduced, he, he follows up the character of Madeline Pryor, who is this Jean Grey doppelganger that he introduced back during the Paul Smith era in 83. And full throttle, 88. They have got her being possessed and this entire hell on earth storyline and it's called Inferno and it is fantastic. And it links up all the X-Men books just as Mutant Massacre had and takes you on this incredible ride where you can't resist. You're buying all of them and in some cases they're involving books like Thor or an Avengers title because why not involve as many people as possible and pull as many other books into the mix because this is money, baby. And this is how Marvel is solidifying their grip on the market. They are taking their most popular title and spinning now all of their important storylines out of their most important title and having it touch other 
uh, titles that maybe aren't selling as well and lifting those to the level of the X-Men or as close as possible. And this becomes kind of their go-to warfare in the marketplace. But getting back to the direct market in and of itself, the stores are loving this because Marvel is basically telling you, we're going to give you, uh, we're going to take your bestsellers and we're going to up the up the game on those bestsellers. We've got a, this artist that's exciting everybody now named Mark Silvestri, who everybody loves how his Wolverine looks and how his Storm looks and his Cyclops and, 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 his, and his Madeline Pryor and, and uh, Havok and Polaris and all the characters that, that uh, a very excited rogue, rogue is in there, never looking better than, than when Mark illustrated her. And Chris is sparking this. The stories get better, just like with Asgardian Wars. Chris took it up a notch because he wanted to write to Arthur's uh, strengths and excite Arthur Adams. Now you've got, um, you know, Chris is very emotional with his writing and his artist. And when he really digs his artist, he's going to up his game. And that's why Mutant Massacre and Fall of the Mutants and Inferno are so exciting. But here's the deal. What they find out along the way is this brand new building off of these uh, these crossovers, which again, may take up a block of three months, in, involve X-Factor, involve New Mutants, maybe spin off to an Avengers book, uh, you know, pull in an issue of, of Thor, uh, you know, pull as many characters into the melee as possible. Well, then they decide, and they put forth this master plan, that they're going to start double shipping their best-selling title. And we enter this phase, which was absolutely genius because it allowed for them to not put any more manpower and creative uh, focus on these miniseries, which, as I said, they launch good. And X-Men Avengers number one launches good, but not better than the original X-Men title, which is the go-to, which is the bread and butter for everybody, all the retailers. X-Men is the best-selling book. It is Marvel's best-selling book. Once the heat dies at DC, the, the market, really X-Men never was outsold by anything at DC. DC just had more of the buzz and more across the board kind of buzzy and, and a real good vibe on their, their line of books. But, but X-Men's still lodging, even with John Romita Jr., it's doing well. Well, now Mark comes on and they do these successful crossovers and they're getting people excited. And then they decide uh, to, to go twice a month, bi-weekly, double shipping, your best-selling book. That makes more sense than maybe taking a guy like Rick Leonardi who had been doing Cloak and Dagger, which is a middle-selling book, okay? Well, Rick Leonardi is a super, super amazing talent. We don't talk about him enough. Beautiful figure work, dynamic figure work, amazing storytelling, page design. Kind of gets overlooked by the Art Adams of it all, who maybe is, is slightly a, a more pandering commercial line. But Rick Leonardi, everybody in the business, every peer I've ever met, we all just gush over him. He's so great. Well, Cloak and Dagger was amazing, and it was amazing because he was drawing it. But he would then serve Marvel in a better capacity as doing every other issue of X-Men during these bi-weekly shipping periods, which Marvel gets in on because it makes more sense than doing brand new X-Men Avengers, X-Men Fantastic Four, which whilst, while those were successful, they're not... Um, giving you X-Men numbers. So what they figure out is this X-Men audience is eating this stuff up. Chris is firing on all cylinders. 
we have gone to Chris and said, Chris, can you go from 12 issues a year to 18 or 20? And of course he can. And we're going to get to that in a minute because that's a lot of money. It's a lot of money for Marvel. It's a lot of money for the creative team. The royalties are ridiculous on this stuff. And I happen to know because in 1988, I get out on the action. I draw an X-Men issue. I get to see what those royalties are like. It's insane. It's crazy. Mark starts being uh, basically the the premier launch guy for these bi-weekly uh, sagas. Uh, G- Genosha, this this introduction of this uh, this kind of a, a, a reflection of kind of the apartheid era, um, South Africa. Chris introduces this kind of South Africa ish uh, minded Genosha where mutants are slaves, and they are uh, there's like a white supremacist superiority uh, that that is oppressing mutant kind, and, and in Genosha a mutant is loses their freedom and becomes a slave to this organization. In in this, they go bi-weekly. And so you got Mark doing one issue, then you've got Rick Leonardi doing another issue. Then Mark is really on his monthly schedule still because his books are coming out every four weeks, but Rick Leonardi is in the middle there. Now his monthly schedule is two weeks off of Mark's. So you get Mark in the beginning of the month, then in the middle of the month you get Rick, then at the top of the next month, you get Mark. Then in the middle of the month, you get Rick. And you guys, this does phenomenal. And, I mean, you've got it back and forth. Genosha, I mean, you've got, you've got Wolverine is captured. And, and Rogue is captured. And then, you know, uh, the X-Men then teleport uh, to, to save them. And, 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 and Wolverine and Rogue have been split up. And Wolverine is nailed to this X-Cross in this amazing maybe the pinnacle of Mark's time on the book. And that's saying something because those Inferno issues are en fuego. They're amazing. That the, the Inferno issues are just some of the most amazing artistic work Mark Silvestri, Walt Simonson did um, at Marvel on the X titles. But Mark then follows it up with this amazing Wolverine issue on the cross, on the X, uh, out there to bake. And, and there is a Conan story where he is, put on an X cross that John Buscema did. And there's some definite um, homage influence going on uh, that, 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 that you just see again, uh, Mark's pure John Buscema roots and influence, except Mark had a commercial 1980s modern line edge to his work that was just so compelling. And Mark was inked by uh, a guy who was very uh, talented inker named Dan Green, but not one of the premier inkers when people discussed like Klaus Janssen, Scott Williams, uh, Terry Austin. Uh, Dan is, is, is really good. He, he attaches himself to Mark Silvestri. Uh, Dan is a great illustrator in his own right, but becomes an anchor for the royalties and the money and the, uh, the regular gig. Because again, it's at this point that the X-Men is selling so much that the creative team is getting rich. And this is not a secret, especially in the business. It's every, it's the thing everybody talked about. One of the early conversations I had with Todd McFarlane after he introduced himself, uh, you know, called us the L boys, and we would then start talking on the phone. He was very much focused on the royalty yield on a book like the X Men, which was selling in the five hundred thousand, six hundred thousand copy range. And I'm going to tell you guys, having done an issue of the X Men, you know. Uh, you, you you can get upwards to twenty thousand dollars an issue as a royalty 
1988, in 1989. That's the kind of yield that that book was giving. And so now make yourself the writer of that book and you're getting that on a bi-weekly uh, schedule. So that's 18, 20 issues a year at that, you know, at that yield. Mark's doing 10 to 12 issues a year at that yield. That is a terrific bonus on top of what you're getting paid to actually draw the book with whatever page rate you're getting, 250 bucks back in the day, whatever. But you're getting a guaranteed between, you know, uh, $18,000, $20,000 on top because the royalties are are providing so much, uh, you know, yield. It, it, it is, it, these are, it's a, it's a huge boost. Mark Silvestri is driving a silver course and living on the beach in Malibu early on, a year into his X-Men run. He is known as the best paid, highest paid, richest artist in the business. Todd McFarlane would break down to me how the numbers work, where the break even was, when the money starts kicking in, the royalties, how much you're getting paid, if you were penciling it, if you were inking it, if you were writing it, how the royalties work together, how they combine, how you can make even more money if you ink yourself, if you write yourself, if you do the scripts. Um, just an incredible lesson to learn, but put the talent aside right now. Marvel is the ones making so much money in this bi-weekly uh, new, new publishing schedule because, again, no more spinoff X-Men's at this point. Because why put a new guy on a spinoff that's ultimately not going to sell as well as the flagship when you can just basically say, we're now giving you your favorite comic twice. So if you're buying, if you were buying 600,000 copies as an industry of the X-Men, we're now selling 1.2 million copies of the X-Men a month instead of 600,000 and you know 600,000 a month and then maybe uh, 400,000 on a spinoff that then falls. You're guaranteed the same number because they're going to order the same of 142 as they do of 143 as they do of 250 as they do of 251. And Rick Leonardi is going to be better spent doing every other issue of the X-Men which which hastens the schedule and is the way that you can get a book every two weeks out. Chris writes a six-part story. Mark gets chapters one, three, six, and, uh, you know, two, and, uh, two, and, uh, four, and, or one, three, five, and two, four, six are handed to Rick Leonardi. And at that point, they're just singing. They're just clicking. And this art is great. It doesn't drop off because again mark is on the monthly schedule and then rick is the in-betweens and the book looks great rick leonardi super commercial penciler better suited on the x-men than he is on a cloak and dagger book that's selling maybe one hundred and fifty thousand for marvel now rick leonardi much better yield he's doing a book that's selling six hundred thousand and like i said chris was so engaged the genosha storyline he brought them to the savage land uh, <clears throat> under Mark, he introduced a new super duper Sentinel Master Mold two parter. Um, and in between all this, guys named Rob Liefeld and Jim Lee are coming in and doing filling issues and uh, helping to get Mark some rest because he is throwing everything he can at these books. And again, uh, like w whether it's X Men uh, two fifty or two fifty one. And, and so, sometimes they would get a guy who
who um, you haven't heard me talk a lot about here, but a guy who is a ridiculously capable penciler named Steve Lealoa. Steve Lealoa comes in. He's fantastic. He's an artist in his own right. He is doing finishes on Mark Silvestri. So the next issue, Dan Green is doing finishes on Mark, while Steve is doing finishes on this other issue. Terry Austin is inking Rick Leonardi. And then a guy named Kent Williams, who's a painter in his own right, decides, well, I'll jam and I'll ink over Rick Leonardi. I cannot tell you how great the artwork. These characters called the Reavers were these vicious hunters of mutants. Um, there was a new... Uh, they took Donald Pierce, one of the side characters in the Hellfire Club. They made him the White King, much more ferocious villain heading up these um, these Reavers. And, uh, and I mean, the storylines are fantastic. This this struggle on Genosha, um, the, 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 the entire, like, Wolverine and Rogue in Genosha are enslaved, are imprisoned. Uh, that's what they do with mutants. It, it, it introduced an entire new oppressive aspect for the mutants. Like I said, Chris was inspired. Um, a lot more weaponry, a lot more conflict, a lot more violence between the Reavers, the Marauders. You had these elements between Fall of the Mutants, Mutant Massacre, Inferno, with with all of the the demonic horde. I mean, the, the X-Men were in over their heads with these crazy conflicts that were drawing all of us in, whether they were crossing over with X-Factor, New Mutants, on an Inferno storyline, or they were doing this bi-weekly. And again, on the, on the X-Men comic, it would say now twice a month, early October, middle October, early November, late November. You're getting two books a month, two of Marvel's bestsellers, and the storylines are compelling. The pace is quicker. The cliffhangers are resolved within two weeks. And then you get a new one. Then you get a new one. Marvel went to this model to great, great success. And if you're a store owner, Marvel just told you, hey, that bestseller you love, we're giving it to you twice a month. We're giving your readers now two times, two opportunities to race into the store. And uh, it worked phenomenally. This is a period of time where the stores in my area went from two to five. Two comic book stores to five comic book stores. Because on the back of Dark Knight, uh, which again was an expensive book, $5 for the time, $6. Watchmen, expensive book. These books were getting people used to buying really high-end editions of comic books and were getting them uh, excited about collecting and consuming and comic books as literature and, and this escapism that was, a, that was on par with what was going on in the movies. And... Uh, and, and Marvel then decides, well, we're going to now up our routine, increase our schedule, and give the retailers more opportunities to make more money. And they did. And it wasn't just the X-Men. Because in the summer of 1989, they decided to do the same thing to Spider-Man. And Todd McFarlane stepped up and starts doing bi-weekly Spider-Man. Eric Larson pitch, hint, pinch hits on an issue, but... They do this uh, really great Red Skull-driven Captain America guest star, Sabretooth. I mean, they jam-pack the commercial aspects of this. So that summer, you're getting two X-Men a month, and you're getting two Spider-Men a month. 
So Marvel is just taking their bestsellers and they are just accelerating the rate with which you receive them, which is exciting. It, guys, I'm in the business at the time, but I can't believe that this is now the new playbook that Marvel has put together. And DC has no answer for it. And this is how Marvel gets back to being completely 100% dominant. So your best-selling books, X-Men, Spider-Man, are now double shipping. So that's two bites at the app for the two best franchises every single month. Which, again, cannot be underscored that now maybe uh, if one guy only came in to get his X-Men once a month, he's definitely coming in twice a month. And maybe he's spending more money in the interim in, in picking up more books, definitely buying more Spider-Man. Todd had really made a wave, had really gotten noticed. It was exciting the fans. It stretched Todd. He uh, couldn't ink all of the issues. He had to hand off the chores, but he definitely stepped up to the, up the plate. He saw that opportunity. He took it, going toe-to-toe -to -toe with the X-Men. Toe-to-toe with the X-Men. Jim Salakrup, who was the editor on the X-Men, was always trying to... Um, I'm sorry, Jim Salakrup, the editor on Spider-Man, was always trying to recruit me. Hey, come on, we're having so much fun in the Spider-Man office. Come on, Eric Larson is joining us. He's doing fill-ins. He's pinch-hitting. Come on, wouldn't it be great if you were there with us? Oh, they're, they're so busy in the X-Men office. You'll get overshadowed. He was so funny. He never, ever meant it in a slight. He knew how successful the X-Men books were, and that's what he had his sights set on, as did Todd. Todd would always tell me, but we can take those X-Men books. We can take them. Spider-Man has never been hotter. We are doing crazy stuff with Spider-Man. We have the fans' attention. We can do this. We can we can compete. And he did. And they did. I mean, I bought the Todd issues. I bought the Eric Larson issues. Uh, Spider-Man was really uh, just rocking and rolling. Uh, so many of the great, so many of those villains were so tailor-made for Todd's interpretation of them. Scorpion, Green Goblin. Uh, uh, Sandman, uh, you name it. Todd drew really cool Spider-Man rogues galleries as interesting and as good as they had been done when they were done by Steve Ditko. He had that creepy factor. But nonetheless, based on his success, they flipped the switch. They got those books to double frequency. And this, you guys, this just, again, pumps so much more money into the comic book marketplace and stores would start to franchise and they would start to get second locations and you saw nationwide um, stores that were one became a chain and and it was on the backs of this double shipping bi-weekly which we enjoyed it they didn't you know they didn't skimp on the quality again it would be one thing if they did no they were bringing Rick Leonardi from Cloak and Dagger and bringing Terry Austin to Inkham or Kent Williams, or P. Craig Russell. I mean, another just outstanding talent. The mashups of talents were fantastic. And Mark Silvestri was born to draw Wolverine and the X-Men. Everything you kind of need to do when you take over the X-Men books. Pretty Women and a great Wolverine. And Mark nailed it. Like I said, there's an entire issue of the X-Men women. Dazzler, Rogue, Storm, Jubilee going shopping. Okay, going shopping. Uh, and, and it was interesting and it was compelling because Mark made it look great. Um, it was intimidating. When I jumped in to do my fill-in in the issue, I think issue X-Men, you know, maybe 245, uh, very, very intimidating. You know, not, not 
wanting to follow Mark because he is shining so bright, worked my ass off to basically just not screw up and, and make the book look anything less than what you expected from Mark, even though I was not Mark. I tried to keep the level and the quality of the penciling at a high level, exactly as Eric Larson was doing on the Spider-Man issues that he was filling in when, when Todd wasn't doing And again, Jim Lee comes in, gets his taste. I got to imagine the fans loved it. Mark did a whole crap load. I have two um, essentials. Uh, X-Men, Marvel makes these black and white phone books called essentials. And they uh, print, you know, 16 issues at a time. And it's all the line art. And they're so great. And I I have them for the Avengers and Francis Four and for the Defenders and Marvel Team Up and Marvel 2-in-1 and um, Iron Fist and Power Man. And obviously I have these all for the X-Men. I love seeing the line art of black and white with no color. And uh, they don't do them as frequently. It was really something that they were really cranking out in the middle 2000s. But Mark has almost two phone books all to himself. He did such an amazing work on this. And again, Chris Claremont, whether it was Madeline Pryor and in, 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 in Inferno or the Genosha storylines, um, <clears throat> the, the, the Reavers, the Marauders, uh, he loved giving Mark work. To, to draw and to flex. And Mark absolutely flexed. And again, just flipping through these books, Mark drew the most attractive people. He very clean, basic, um, obvious storytelling that was easy to follow. Um, uh, just a great storyteller. Could really collapse your eye through any page. Um, and Chris would give him a lot of stuff to do. A lot of work. A lot of interaction. A lot of... Uh, a lot of cool, cool stuff. Havoc and Polaris joined the group. Forge joined the group. Um, again, the, 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 the stories were ridiculously entertaining. And you were getting them at a greater frequency. And a rising tide lifts all ships. It not only lifted Marvel's line. Because suddenly now, as I've said, let's say Spider-Man was doing 450 a, a month, okay, under Todd. Well, now you're getting, you know, almost 900,000 with him doing it twice a month, and then the X-Men, 6 and 6, 1.2 million. And Marvel is just making all sorts of cash and is not alone in that retailers are making all sorts of cash and the creators are making all sorts of cash. And there's becoming, there's there's a little bit of a cast system that's happening in comics because whether it's Jerry Ordway at DC Comics, who was a friend of mine who's discussing it, or Mike Zeck, who's now drawing for DC Comics, discussing it, the amount of money that was being made by Chris Claremont, by Mark Silvestri, by people associated with the Xbox, was the talk of the town, the talk of the, uh, you know, bar cons, the, the after hours at conventions. Um, people were not jealous or envious. They were just in awe of the, the kind of money that was now coming into comics because it was changing people's lives. Having gone to Mark's Malibu home right off PCH, this cool little bachelor pad uh three three different you know rooms uh right on the beach i mean as i said if the tide got high it was hitting his windows hitting his walls um mark started hosting uh parties after san diego comic-con and i got to go in 1989 in 1990 hang out uh mark would have 20 30 people and host these great 
parties. And I did some signings with Mark early on in the Los Angeles, Southern California area. And Mark would pull up in his silver uh, bullet, the silver bullet Porsche. And uh, he was living life. Mark was doing exceptionally well. And it was a new style of comic book artist. And I continue to say Mark because he was the guy that it hit first and hit biggest of its kind at that period. He was having fun. He was making his deadlines. The thing about Mark, the reason he's on the book as often as he is, as long as he is, is because he does this high quality work. Chris Claremont clearly loves him, clearly loves writing great visuals for him. That issue where, uh, where, where, where Wolverine is hanging on the cross, um, is so beautiful. It is so uh, compelling. I, I I believe it is X Men issue number. Is it two fifty three? Uh, it is just Mark flexing hardcore at exactly what he does. Great. It's issue two fifty one. This cover and 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 the vultures flying around him and the and the delirious uh, aspect of the story as we kind of go through some of Wolverine's. Uh, past tra traumas and his traumas come to life and play out in front of him. Just a brilliant issue then followed by this Rick Leonardi issue, which again, uh, you know, has the Reavers and Donald Pierce, the, the, the white King, you know, in hot pursuit of the X-Men and wanting to know how did Wolverine escape and who is this girl Jubilee who freed him. Just amazing, exciting stuff that electrified the industry sold umpteen amounts of copies, was so successful that the amazing Spider-Man office got in on it the next year. And if you don't think that paved the way for what would happen in 1990, the relaunch of Spider-Man under Todd with Spider-Man number one, this is all inching towards a drastic, massive sea change in the comics industry. Because again, what these guys at these departments, what drives them is, well, we just hit this pinnacle where now we went from 600,000 X-Men to 1.2 million copies of X-Men. We went from 450,000 Spider-Men to 900,000. Well, what do we do next? Well, what mountain do we climb next? You know, within the realm of not hiking the price up and, and putting this out of reach of the buyers in 1988, You know, where do we go next? And, and where they went next in that summer of 1990, as you all know, was Spider-Man number one. And, uh, you know, we're, we're skipping steps, but I'm telling you, that's, that's not far from view, from view here, because again, the business is changing. A lot of money is being pumped in the comics industry. The direct market is becoming a very valid, um, uh, uh, business center. It, it, the, the commerce is strong. Uh, when, when they do something like an Inferno, when they do something like uh, Mutant Massacre, when they go bi-weekly, Marvel sends giant posters. They have uh, point-of-purchase displays. They are spending money to get the retailers hyped, to get the message out to fans, to get them psyched about what they can come along and be part of. And it worked. It worked ridiculously. I think probably beyond their wildest imaginations. It makes all the sense in the world. Why would it put a creative team on a brand new spinoff book that's inevitably not going to get the same numbers when you can double up the frequency, take an additional creative team, attach it onto your top book, and increase the frequency? 
brilliant, worked amazingly well for Marvel, helped establish kind of this new uh, pattern of aggression in the market that they would continue to pursue and uh, and 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 represented this new age. This new age is we are knocking on the 90s. I mean, this is 1988. This is summer of 89. These shipping twice a month. It's right there. Now, twice monthly. Um, now, every other week. I mean, they want you to know, don't blink. Don't miss an issue. Don't miss an issue with your favorite characters. Wolverine, always on the cover, always front and center. They knew which side their bread was buttered on, and they were pushing it. And they also started going to a weekly format with some of their anthology, anthology titles like Mar Marvel Comics Presents. So this is all beginning to come together for Marvel. They know now what you want, and they are eager to give it to you as often as they can, and they do not uh, shirk on the quality. They get the best names in the business to deliver. And that's one thing, honestly, that I will wrap up by saying that the X-Men used to deliver the best names in the business. The top names in the business would find their way to these books for the, the, the exposure to the biggest audience, to the biggest royalties and the most money, the Silver Porsche, the Malibu House. These were now things that were just inconceivable. And again, I didn't get from Todd agreed when he would break down to us. He was just trying to say, hey man, we're blue collar guys and this is a way to maximize. As we're drawing on these pages, if you ink, you're adding a royalty point. If you um, do the story, you're adding a, a, a full royalty point. Um, if you script, you're doing a, a half point. You're getting a point five. It, it's all these different ways to maximize so that we can raise families, so that we can do better as cartoonists. And it all was starting to come together here with these increased schedules, these bi-weekly comics, Spider-Man, X-Men, and just the excitement they generated. Because again, I was there as a fan, as a professional. It was exciting. The game was up. It was like, wow, the X-Men are delivering the goods. The stories are better. The pace is faster. This is showing what is capable. And the quality does not slip. These were exciting times as we barrel towards the 90s. The L-Boys have arrived, okay? We're getting double shipping on X-Men and double shipping on Amazing Spider-Man. You're getting a weekly comic with Marvel Comics Presents. This is just a very exciting time. Things that are working are working extremely well and paving the way for so much to follow. Thank you for listening to Rob's Observations. Thanks for hanging out with me. I love talking comics with you. I love breaking it down, the business end, the creative end. Mark Silvestri definitely sparked an entire new creative era from Chris Claremont, who really responded. And then going to this increased shipping, this increased schedule was just an electric time I remember as if it was yesterday it inspired me and the work that I did because I wanted to keep up I did not want to get um, left behind I did not want to be uh, uh, left out of all the fun and all of the amazing stuff that was going down so when Bob Harris called me when I was doing Hawking Dove and said come join us at Marvel I'm getting new guys on the X-Men let's let, come come be a part of this party that was a thrill Please follow me on social media at Twitter. I am at Robert Liefeld with the blue check so that you can see that I'm the real deal, not the imitation at Robert Liefeld, full name. And on Instagram, I'm at 
Rob Liefeld, again, blue check, tells you that it's the real deal, not the imitation. I'm all over social media. Talk to me on all these different platforms, Facebook, uh, Twitter, all of it. Let, let, let's talk. I love to read your comments. I love the feedback, guys. We are having such a great time uh, as we continue to examine the history of comics and the past informs the future and shows us where we're headed. Thank you for hanging out with me. We are going to talk again soon. Stay, stay, stay safe in these crazy times. Stay out of trouble and take care of yourself. Thank you.